I'm Sonia Morton Firth, and today you're tuned in to the Sonia Morton Firth Show. Today, my guest is Mark Menke, veteran, award-winning author, and podcast host. And but the other part is the style of therapy. Uh, for instance, um, I hit a tripwire. I'm the only guy I know that hit a tripwire and didn't explode. Mark was part of the Canadian Light Infantry and served in Croatia during the genocide. Following the publishing of his first book, he was diagnosed with PTSD. The attitude of gratitude is absolutely freaking crucial because the other side of that is the victim mentality. Mark found help with peer support and now helps veterans and his first responders through his trauma recovery podcast, Operation Tango Romeo. Mark, thank you so much for being a guest on my show today. It's wonderful having you. And you've got to tell my audience where you're from. Where, where, where are we tuning into? Well, I am right next to one of the uh, wonders of the world. The <laughs> I'm in a town called Okotoks. It's a Blackfoot name for Big Rock. There's this big rock just down the street uh, that was dropped there by a glacier. Uh, however many years ago that was. It's uh, not a wonder of the world, but it is one of the historical sites, uh, national or international historical sites or whatever. But I'm in Okotoks, Alberta, which is just south of Calgary, that a lot of people know for the Calgary Stampede and the Calgary Flames. Uh, I am not a Flames fan, though. I'm an Oilers fan because I grew up in Edmonton. Wow. I'm, uh, look, I I'm so um, excited that we've managed to, to make this happen. Um, I was a guest uh, on your podcast, Operation Tango Romeo, um, a few weeks ago now, and I really enjoyed that. So um, thank you for coming on my show this time. Um, Mark, before we get into to your story, tell me about Operation Tango Romeo, because that's sort of how we met, um, your support and love of veterans. Well... I just said yes to a uh, invite to a peer support group and I didn't want to go. Uh, it was at the beginning of my journey as at the uh, operational stress injury clinic for veterans and um, somebody just kind of spotted me and, and introduced himself and his name is John Senior who's been a co-host on several of the episodes but uh, he drugged me out to a peer support meeting. I was kind of rolling my eyes like I don't want to do what are we going to do hold hands and sing kubaya like come on. But, just quickly, what is a peer support meeting? Just so I, so we understand. Well, and they're everywhere, no matter what your subset or group is. But uh, the peer support for veterans, which, before I explain it, is so important. It is so important. Um, it just provides you a sense of connection and the understanding that oh, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one. And then you hear other people's stories at, uh, at the peer support. The way we do it, and some people are really turned off from peer support meetings because they just hear the oh, poor me um, stories all the time and, and pe people that are trapped in the cycle of victimhood. And that's not healthy. That's not good. So we have never done that <laughs> at our peer support groups. We do a little bit of sharing, uh, like you know, what, what is your service and um, what are the symptoms that you're struggling with? You know, what's been going rough for you and what have you been doing well at? And, but there's always a learning component to the peer support groups, at least the way that we do it. And so it's a place that we get together 
once every couple of weeks. And it is so healing because of the connection that it provides. After World War II, um, the Royal Canadian Legion was invented. And at the time, it was a pub. And soldiers would go there because just yesterday, I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but just yesterday was our regimental uh, birthday. Well, which is actually, it's our regimental day, which is the birthday of the first lady, Patricia. The you, second lady, Patricia. You're, sorry, just to interrupt, you were, um, you were in the Canadian Light Infantry, is that, that's right? Yes, Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. So Lady Patricia was our first uh, Colonel-in-Chief, and then the namesake of Lady Patricia um, was given to the Countess Mountbatten of Burma, who I've met and who actually put my medal on my chest in a war zone. It was so awesome. Um, I'm going to come uh, back to that. Sorry, carry so on. It's the birthday of the First Lady Pat uh, of Lady Patricia, and it's a very, very sacred day for us. So a bunch of us got together, and it was the most healing, wonderful thing to get a bunch of Patricias together, even though I didn't know uh, some of them in the room, some of them I did, the embrace that you give another man, the just the, the like, it's a real hug, you know, not just but a little don't, tap, don't tap we miss hug. those right now as well. Yes. Well, we didn't care about the COVID. Yeah. It was just like, come here, brother, you know, and I even got a kiss on the cheek from one of the guys when he was drunk. <laughs> but um uh, that type of connection that used to happen at the Royal Canadian Legion is what I experienced yesterday at uh, our regimental day. Because you are now with people that you can converse to, people that you feel understand you. And that is so important and so powerful. Um, and today, that is not really happening at the Royal Canadian Legion. And there are some issues with that. Nobody ever goes because they don't feel that same sense of connection, that same sense of I can just be myself. So a peer support group replaces that. It's just, or augments it anyway. It's just another place to go for that sense of connection. Um, now we take it a little bit further. Uh, we do the psych ed piece. So we, we share things like um, Don Miguel Ruiz, the four agreements or the five love languages. And we we talk about these books and these concepts and how we can use them in our life to overcome some of the struggles of PTSD. And as it grew, I ended up being the, uh, uh, the guy running the group, which was a surprise. And not long after that, I thought, you know, I have this other show anyway. Uh, and these guys are asking and, and ladies, it's, it's uh, co-ed, <laughs> uh, but um, asking for me to preserve these lessons because they would take them home and try to parlay them to their uh, spouses or to their kids. And it just wasn't coming through. So I thought, well, I already have the gear. Let's, let's start Operation Tango Romeo and try to preserve these peer support lessons because people would drive for two hours a two hour drive, actually one was doing a three hour drive just to get to our peer support group every other week. So it meant something and does mean something to the people that show up. It is that healing, that powerful that somebody will do a three hour drive just yeah. to attend. And um, now it's available without doing the three hour drive around the world. We're in 42 countries last I, last I counted. 
And yeah. how do you find your podcast helps um, veterans? A few different ways. So it provides that sense of connection because there's a culturally competent voice coming through. Um, I'm not a clinician. I'm a, an army veteran with a tour. And I've been injured by PTSD and I have a destroyed marriage and a train wreck of a life in the rear view mirror, uh, despite appearances to the contrary. And because of that, and my ability to be vulnerable and just tell the truth, not hide anything, not gloss over anything, I tell the truth. Um, and when you share your story, other people go, oh, well, you just shared it out loud on a international platform. So I guess I don't have to sit in the corner and be ashamed because I think the same thing that you'd think, or I'm suffering through the same thing that you're suffering through. And if you can tell the whole damn world, well, I guess I don't have to be ashamed. I, and that's how you get rid of stigma and get people to the point where they're able to reach out for help. So I provide that sense of connection to people, not just myself, but through the guests that I have on. And then people don't feel like they're alone or that they're the weird one or the odd, the odd person out. The second way that Operation Tango Romeo helps is it is an aggregate for healing modalities. I interview everybody and their dog for uh, like what works from magic mushrooms to service dogs and everything in between. What works? Why does it work? And how do I get some? That's those are the interviews. So uh, I've talked to people with equine therapy, uh, you name it. And there's a thousand more to have on there. I had a declutter expert on uh, recently. Uh, there's just so many ways. You, to you've had some amazing guests, Mark, and I, and I know I've, I've, I've well, I've, I've actually interviewed a couple of them as well. Uh, but let me ask you about you, because this is this is about you. Tell me, well, first of all, tell me why did you join the military? Let's let's take you back in time a little bit. Why the military? Do you have any Tim Hortons donuts in England? No, we've got Dunkin' Donuts and... Uh, yeah, Dunkin' Donuts? Yeah. Well, it's a Canadian thing, a very Canadian thing. So Tim Horton was a um, hockey player, of course, and uh, years later started up Tim Horton's Donuts. And anyway, it's Canadian culture now, even though I'm pretty sure it's American owned, it's been bought out. <laughs> but there are Tim Hortons around the world. I even saw one in Abu Dhabi when I was there. And... Um, now, why in the hell did I say, oh, why I joined the army? So I was I'm wondering myself. how the donuts and the army yeah. is going to go together. But I, can't, I, can't. I was 20 years old at Tim Horton's Donuts, flipping uh, as a front end server, my skin tight purple polyester pants. <laughs> <laughs> and I was doing the night shift and um, the regulars that would come in <laughs> were just bitter bitter, broken people. And, um, and, and just listening to their stories, the older I get, the better I was kind of stories. I was looking at them and I was thinking, I'm 20 years old flipping donuts. Hmm, that's gonna be me. I, blew, I was looking at my future. <laughs> He's like, I've got to do something worth doing here. And uh, I said, well, God damn it, I'm going to join the army. And, uh, and I don't know what it's going to be like, but it's a three-year commitment. And at the other side of it, uh, at the other side of the three years, I'll, I'll have something. It'll be a resume stuffer, something, you know. 
And um, so that was a big, big driver, but I wanted to join as a medic because even as a kid, I mean, I, I was the kind guy, you know, I mean, I had to get in a lot of scraps, unfortunately, growing up, but, um, but, but that's not what I wanted. That's just what I had to do. I didn't have much. Why, why, did, you, why did you have to get into scrap? I was always the different kid um, because of numerous, numerous childhood traumas. Uh, my situational and self-awareness was the shits. So I, I never knew how to fit in. Can you go into any of those childhood traumas? Is there any I, I can, but uh, before I do, uh, I wasn't able to um, even talk about it until about five years ago. So I'm 50 now. So until the age of 45, most of these were, I never spoke of them because um, they are hard. But the, the uh, childhood traumas, I was molested from the age of seven to 12 by an older family member. And although at the time it didn't seem traumatic, it was just um, it was just weird and different. But it throws off your compass of of right and wrong, and what is what should be and what shouldn't, and that alone um, really threw me off as far as my development. Uh, it, it created in itself a deve developmental challenge for me, for sure. Uh, between that and a father whose his father was a World War II veteran, um, dad, unfortunately, could not control his temper sometimes. And uh, so I would get knocked around, slapped, backhanded, even knocked to the ground and had the boots laid to me once or twice. Okay. And uh, so things like that um, really take away from your ability to know who you are and to like yourself and to care about yourself and know how to act and know how to fit in. I just, I, I wasn't able to. And so because of that, I was always the, the odd man out. Um, I'd have lunch by myself with no friends. I'd be sitting, I, I was isolated all the time, which is a very painful thing. Um, and I was a little bit smaller. I'm I'm five nine, like a regular size guy, but uh, it took me a long time to get to five nine. So I was little for a long time, and um, uh, so people would try me out, and I'd be all meek and and scared, and and I didn't want to fight until I did, <laughs> and then I would snap, and it would be on. And what I found is like this is the only way they will leave me alone. Yeah, is the only way. Uh, so I busted a lot of noses. Um, but, but you said that joining the, the military wasn't anything to do with that fight inside you because you no. wanted to join the medics. You wanted yeah, to who's the other? It just so happened I had a scrapping background, but that's not what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a medic, but uh, and I thought I was a medic. So I, I, I thought that I'd got in. What I thought I heard from the recruiter is like, yep, uh, you're in and you're shipping out on February 11th. So I thought, well, that's great. Um, but what, <laughs> so as February 11th was started getting closer and closer, I ended up um, uh, going down to Canada Place where the recruiting office was and go, hey, hey, remember me? I uh, haven't heard from you guys in a while. And he went, oh, no, 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 you misunderstood. You competed for the position, but you didn't get it. I went, oh, my God, I've already had the going away party. You know, <laughs> like, what else do you got? music to a recruiter's ears. He said, well, there's the infantry. I said, great, I'll take it. What is it? 
Oh my God. So you went from thinking you were going in as a medic to actually being in the infantry, which- um, The exact opposite, yeah. Yeah, being basically on the front in back, like literally- That's right. So I wanted to patch them up and instead uh, I went into the trade that puts holes in them. (laughs) So I didn't want to be a killer. I wanted to be a healer. I mean, presumably from even a mental standpoint, you know, obviously I can't imagine that, but there's one thing thinking, okay, I want to go in and and save people's lives or help people, um, you know, medically heal and whatever. And then I guess there's another way going, I'm I'm going in to kill people. Yeah. Uh, Well, not no judgment because it's not a judgment, you know. No, no, it was hard, uh, especially the first couple of years making that transition in mindset. But then once again, I was the odd person sticking out. You know, once again, I didn't fit. And I still didn't have the skills to understand how to read a room and how to fit in and act like other people. I didn't have those skills. Pardon? Were you frightened, Mark? No. uh, When it was time. So when I joined, just before I shipped out, the first Gulf War opened up. And if you remember, everybody thought that that was World War Three at that time, at Gulf War One. And um, yeah. so I figured, well, I'm just following in my grandfather's footsteps on both sides. Both, both grandparents were World War Two veterans. And um, so I just figured, well, it's, it's the family tradition. I guess I'm going to war. And that's what everybody thought who was joining at that time. Then it petered out after a couple of weeks. Um, but it, once, once I got to battle school, though, and it was very insightful of you to, uh, uh, to point that out, uh, battle school was tough because it was how to kill people. That was, that's the job. And people like to, to use euphemisms like close with and, and destroy the enemy or fight through the objective. It means kill. You know, kill with a knife, a rock, <laughs> uh, by shooting, uh, whatever, your bayonet. And, but killing is the job. That is the job and there's no way around it. And despite the human history of battle, it's really not natural for us, I don't think, which is one of the reasons um, I personally believe PTSD, even though battle is a big part of our history, it's not how we're wired. You know, there's, it's, it, it, it throws you off if, if that's your, um, if that's something that, that you have to partake in especially on a regular basis, like the Afghanistan veterans did. You were in the Croatia genocide, um, or, or as in you were in the country um, at the time. Yeah. Am I right? Um, yes, the, the, there was a series of wards, wars cascading across the Balkans that started in 91, 92. And I was there in 94. So uh, the official Croatian war was, was over in 95 after the Great Purge, but um, it, it, it kept going, really, you know, uh, kept going for a while. But I, I was there in 94. The, <laughs> the politicians, the Canadian politicians didn't want the public to really think that we we're going into a war zone. They, they dressed us up with our blue hats. We were under the UN flag at the time, and we were sort of the, uh, the poster boys for Uh, for peacekeeping and they wanted to paint us like we're a bunch of teddy bears 
well, that's that's not what peacekeeping is. <laughs> you know, not what at all. What was it like? What, what was it more like? Well, it's a war zone. You know, it's uh, you're in the middle um, between two warring factions that are bound and determined to shoot each other. And you're literally in the middle, in the crossfire, um, disarming them. So you're taking their guns away from them, which means you have to kick in doors and take away guns from people that don't want to give up those guns. Um, it's, it's a hairy, hairy job. Uh, and where we were at the time was called the Kryina. So the Kryina was Serb-held Croatia. Um, so pockets of, uh, of areas, and they would be marked kind of like gang signs. Uh, they would have the, uh, the Kryina uh, Serb, uh, one of uh, their two markings. So it's a cross with a bunch of backward C's in it. And that would be on bridges and overpasses and on street signs sort of marking. This is like you're in the Kryina. So this is our territory so bugger off and that's where we were in like in the in the Krajina the whole time so in the place of disputed territory and keeping them from from killing each other was the job by disarming uh, enforcing dmz's demilitarized zones and um yeah and what i was going to say is the term that the canadian government was using was ethnic cleansing yeah. Well, it sounds like you're having a bath. It was genocide. That's what it was. And um, ethnic cleansing was a was a made up word to so that um, to distract people from the fact that it was a genocide. Um, Muslims were being uh, wiped out by the village. You know, entire Muslim villages were wiped out, man, woman, and child bodies put in pits. It was unbelievable. And uh, when the Croats uh, purged Croatia, that's what they were doing to the Serbs. Um, and the Serbs just wanted to, it's like, hey, I grew up here. What's what's the deal? It's like, nope, out. We're, we're claiming independence and we can't do that with Serbs here. So get the hell out. And um, it was, there was no honor in any of this because um, it wasn't soldier versus soldier with defined lines. It was a slaughter of civilians. Civilians, yeah. yeah. But you, you, you must have seen some atrocities. Um, and obviously, I, I don't want you to, go, not without going into detail, how did it affect you, you know, when you came away from that? I guess looking well, back. There were clues um, even while I was there. Uh, didn't recognize them at the time, but looking back, I, I could see that I was already affected while I was there. Uh, some of the things that I saw, um, the crowds of re refugees is really something because you can't help them. There's fuck all you can do. And uh, when you see a crowd of, and I saw it a couple of times, a crowd of, I don't know, 500 people and from little babies to uh, grannies, and um, like all hunched over grannies with a, with a giant bundle of sticks for firewood that they got to carry with them on their back and um, uh, horse and cart and carrying their suitcases. And you don't know where the hell they just came from or where they're going to, but uh, somebody just destroyed their village and they're just going to the neighbor's village, I guess, <laughs> you know, but all you can do is sit and watch. You can't feed them. Uh, the UN didn't provide us resources to, 
to do anything other than sit there and be helpless. And, um, and God knows how many miles that these people are putting on. Uh, stuff like that, that sense of helplessness. And of course, the, the carnage from when a village is purged. Um, nobody is spared from uh, babies to grandmas. It didn't matter. They're all dead. And um, I mean, it's the sort of thing, you know, you see on horror films, you don't, it is. you don't think to see that in real life. And I guess, especially if you were going in as, as a medic, um, well, you thought you were going in as a medic and then you're in this completely different situation. Yeah. And, and that was the adjustment. Um, and it wasn't an easy adjustment because my first posting, my first battalion was the third battalion and the third battalion was, uh, for all intents and purposes. And I know that any of the guys watching are going to spank me if I use the term, but it, it's true. It was, it was a special forces battalion, sort of, it was, it was air mobile. So it's kind of like the Americans 101st airborne. We didn't jump out of planes, but we were transported by helicopters and, we were the most physically fit unit in the country at the time and super, super aggressive. And uh, I'm like, oh, great. So not only do I have to be a killer, <laughs> but I have to adjust to the most aggressive of the three battalions. Oh, boy. And uh, so it was hard. I didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. And it wasn't until I got posted to the first battalion that I fit in. And I got along with everybody in the first battalion. It was fine. Not that I didn't have a couple of good friends from the third. I did. But I didn't fit in. I uh, probably wasn't considered to be a great soldier at the time because I didn't fit in. Um, but in the first battalion, I was starting to figure it out. And I, I got along with everybody. And I was considered to be a pretty decent soldier at that time. So thank goodness for that at the first battalion. Because that's um, when I was in the first, that's who I deployed with. I deployed with the first. So the people that I was overseas with were all friends. You know, we all got along. You mentioned earlier that you received a medal. Well, everybody does for a tour. Yeah. So um, it's minimum 45 days in country. Uh, at least it was something like that. And then, then you get your medal. And uh, uh, as I was saying, Lady Patricia is, um, was there with her husband. And we we're all in formation on this uneven ground. It was, in, it was certainly not a parade square. It was kind of on the side of a hill, actually. It was... But uh, she took the time to put medals on our chest herself personally. And uh, that, that was pretty damn special. Yeah, she, hell of a lady. We, we miss her dearly. So when you, when you came back to normal life, you, you, you left the military. At what point did you start feeling like something wasn't right, that the, the PTSD was showing itself? I mean, you said you were, it had signs. What what were the signs or the symptoms? Well, even in the middle of the tour, um, one of the incident, like I don't know which particular incident, there were 10, 20 incidents, but um, I don't know which one put me over the top or if it was just a, a culmination, culmination of all of them. But even when I was on my UN leave, so halfway through the tour, I got to go to uh, Canada for 18 days. And uh, which is, I should not have done because, because it's just too much of a contrary, too much of a contrast mm. between the two environments. Um, but uh, I had in the truck at, at the time, my girlfriend and my sister. And uh, 
I, I don't remember what the conversation was, but I felt like I was getting picked at just a little bit and uh, which my sister is awesome at <laughs> and, uh, ever since we were little she knows how to push the buttons and loves doing it but um i think she takes great pride in that actually but there there was a little bit of um uh poking and i absolutely exploded exploded going down Sherd park freeway and screaming back at him at the top of my lungs get stay the fuck away from me leave me the fuck alone and just like an absolute explosion of fury. Um, and then it was really, really quiet <laughs> for the rest of the drive. Yeah, like, wow, where's that mark come from? We've never seen that before. Yeah, it was it was nuts. So looking back, I can see stuff like that. I'm like, oh, I was already injured at that point. Okay. Now, now I, I guess in, in, in those days, and you know, I'm not saying in those days, like you're really old, but PTSD wasn't talked about then, right? No. It wasn't, people didn't recognize it as an, as, a, as an injury. Uh, when did you start recognizing this? Or, and, I, and I hate to use the word label, but when were you actually diagnosed, um, if, if that's the appropriate thing to say? Not till like five years ago, uh, Sonia. I went over 20 years with uh, not connecting those dots, despite a just a train wreck of, of events, road rage incidents where I actually got out of my vehicle and opened the door of the other vehicle to drag them out of the car, like over the top, you know. And, and I, I don't know you that well, Mark, but you don't strike me as that person. <laughs> you know, you don't strike me as an aggressive, uh, as an aggressive individual. And of course, I, I, that is a sweeping statement, but. Well, most days I'm not. On most days, I'm as nice as pie. I'm kind and gentle and friendly um, until I get pushed. And when I get pushed, um, it's it's just something snaps. Uh, there's it's like a, a switch that flips, and all of a sudden, uh, somebody becomes a threat that needs to be neutralized, and that's it. Nobody wanted to be at the dinner table with me because um, at the dinner table, I was so high anxiety. It was ridiculous because everybody needed to be in their place and and doing the thing. You no, know, everybody's supposed to be on task, and it was a mission. It was like it was a life or death mission every meal, and I didn't know I was doing it, you know, and I didn't recognize it. The self awareness wasn't there. Uh, all I did know is that nobody wanted to have dinner with me because uh, if my my kids weren't eating the right way, uh, or if they were uh, messing around at the table. I couldn't do it and I'd be barking at him. And one day, my youngest, who was like seven or eight at the time, and he's just the sweetest, kindest, gentlest soul. And he's walking to the dishwasher and he, his plate tips and the crumbs fall off his plate and hit the floor. The crumbs hit the floor and I hit the roof. I was down on my knee, yelling in his face, Dawson! pull your head out of your ass. What are you doing? What are you thinking? Can't you see? And, and I couldn't stop myself. And also I had this out of body experience where I was watching myself in horror and, but I couldn't stop. And I watched his face just melt. I watched my kid break in front of me and I couldn't stop. I was, I was suddenly aware of the effect I was having, but I couldn't stop. And then my wife put her hand on my shoulder and, um, uh, and she said, Mark, they're just crumbs. And all of a sudden I understood for the first time that I had a problem. 
And then in, in a panic, I, I reached out to the Royal Canadian Legion and um, started the process of help. And that was the hardest phone call I've ever made in my life, Sonia. You know, because I, I didn't want to know that I had a problem. And I certainly didn't want to blame it on my military service. You know, it, I've never, it was so hard. It was a thousand pound telephone. But uh, now here I am four years later uh, with a podcast to be it as open as a person can be about, uh, about all of it. You've come so far. Did they link your PTSD as well to your childhood trauma? Um, it, it's always cumulative. And there's a propensity for people with excessive childhood trauma to join the military or to join the, uh, the police. That's what that I happens was going to say. Yeah, because I've, I've interviewed um, a lot of veterans, and mm. you know, uh, some of which have suffered PTSD, some of which haven't. Um, and it seems to be the ones that have said they've had childhood traumas have been the ones that have gone on and, and suffered PTSD. Yeah, it, well, it's the it's the trauma cup. I think the average healthy life. I mean, everybody experiences trauma. I don't. Oh care gosh, yes, and and, and you can't and you can't take trauma away. I mean, I, I remember mm. speaking to one veteran, um, Andy Reid, amazing guy, and MBE, and you know, he was blown up in Afghanistan. He's he's got one arm left, um, mm. and yet he sits there and he says, anybody can be stressed anyone can have trauma. And I'm sitting there, my stress can't be like your stress. It's absolutely it is. It's not. You can't wait. Just because one is, seems more horrific, it might not be as horrific to that, that individual. Um, and that I found so um, like humbling for him to say that, if that makes sense. Well, I think you're alluding to the what I call the trauma Olympics. Like I, I don't compare um, PTSD uh, that I suffer from to anybody else's. I don't care if it was from a car accident. Um, it, it doesn't matter. Mm. Like you were injured or you weren't. It doesn't, the modality of injury is, is totally irrelevant. Mm. It just doesn't matter. It just so happens that in war zones, the level of stress is so high for such a prolonged period that you're more likely to suffer through a, a stress injury. So I, I don't compare traumas. It's not cool. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree, but I think um, I think people do. It happens all the time. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. As a as sort of a like, wow, you've been through all that. That must be awful. And yet somebody else is has been through what they consider real trauma, but it just doesn't seem right. I guess it's just the way we're, we're all programmed, right? To, to think one thing is, is, is bigger than the other, but I, I completely agree. It's, it's, it's how you perceive something. It's, uh, oh, absolutely. The, the, the effects of betrayal, uh, being betrayed by somebody that you uh, care about, love and trust. Oh my that, God, it can be that, the most awful thing in the world. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, no, we, we don't measure our trauma dicks is one of the ways that I say it. You just don't do it. It's, um, it's not okay. Because at the end of the day, you're injured or you're not. And those injures, injuries are causing you problems with your life or they're not. And, and that's it. So how did, so, so you were diagnosed, how did you then start the recovery process? 
um, or what is helping you um, well th through the last four years and, and through now because I believe it's something it's a journey that you continually go on and it is it's never ending I was with a friend last night who was very defeatist about it and he was very very adamant that there is no help this is who you are now and there's there ain't no fixing it you just got to learn to muscle through it and to a degree he's not exactly wrong um the it's more than your neural pathways that, that are all messed up it's uh some of this somehow and i don't understand how but your body itself holds these traumas and that might sound a little woo-woo for some people but i've come to the point where i actually believe that i, I completely believe in mind-body connection so if you if you if you think of it about most things then it it's so it must it makes sense therefore if you've been through some sort of trauma then yeah absolutely your body would hold on to that i believe so and um but i've also come to the point where i know that healing happens i do believe that i've experienced it myself some things got worse, actually, a lot worse, um, and got worse as a direct result of the therapy I was taking. What, what got worse, Mark? Anxiety attacks. Um, I never used to have those. And now, as a result of the therapy, I have them quite, quite badly. They're actually debilitating. And uh, I'm not quite thinking I need a service dog, but I now understand the need for a service dog. Uh, because when they hit, they're debilitating. You have to leave a room or a building or a conversation and like you, you cannot muscle through it. And um, Do you know and what I, triggers them? Have you sort of- It, it is hit and miss. You never know where it's gonna hit or why. You know, uh, there, are, there are certain things where you, you can look back and go, well, that was obvious how, how that happened. Um, with COVID now, everybody taking your temperature at the door and whatnot for those protocols. Well, that's a little, little tiny, looks like a gun, right? And the way that it's, that it's held. Well, I had a guy aggressively and not, you know, it just, just lurch at me and shove it at my head uh, to take my temperature. And there was, I, no, I was not expecting that to set me off, but it goddamn did. Cause I've had real guns pressed yeah. up Ooh. against my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I can see it, you know, and I, I know we, before they shut the gyms, like I go, they used to go to the gym every day and they literally point this thing at you without giving you any warning and it's like, bang, you know, at you and it's like, um, and obviously I don't have any sort of uh, PTSD from anything. So that, yes, I can imagine it being triggering you completely. Well, e even the neighborhood kids with a Nerf gun, I don't let them point them at me. And, and, and I've always recognized that like the whole time. It's like, don't, don't point that at me. And my kids know damn well, don't even point a stick at me. Yeah. Don't. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that is not okay. Cause I've had real ones pointed at me and it's uh, it's a bit much. It, it, so it's just, and so when somebody without, without even thinking um, uh, not just points it at me, but lurches at me and sticks it up, you know, right in front of my head Um and then when I, I commented on it, and he's like, oh, I didn't like that. Instead of backing off and, you know, because he doesn't know who I am or what my history yeah, is. Yeah, of course he doesn't. But um, uh, instead of backing off, uh, I, he was making fun of it. He's like, well, it's better than the other way we take temperatures, referring to a rectal oh, yeah. thing. You know, and I'm like, well, come on, dude. Uh, but uh, I was a mess for and, and days after. 
you know, and not so much because of the incident, but because of how he wouldn't back off after I was trying to explain myself to him. And, and I guess he's got his, we've all got our own ways of reacting to things and, and, and looking at things with our own paradigms and our own filters. And I guess he just didn't know where, where you were coming from. I'm not, you know, that it's very difficult at this, this stage. I, I think COVID has actually unleashed all sorts of um, not so nice traits of people. Um, and, and, and there is a lot of, and, and it's, it, you know, in some ways it's brought us together and, and a lot of other ways it hasn't. And then there's a lot of friction and, and fractionization out there, um, certainly. Um, but just going back to, you know, you said the therapy had potentially brought out or brought out more anxiety. Do you think that's because before, and, I, and I'm not a therapist, so I'm, I'm, I'm just sort of, just as a, as a conversation, do you think that's because before you were really burying everything and maybe drowning it with other things, and now it's coming up to the surface? Some of it, and but the other part is the style of therapy. Uh, for instance, um, I hit a tripwire. I'm the only guy I know that hit a tripwire and didn't explode. Uh, it ended up being a dummy wire, and. Um, I hit that at full speed. I was actually at a jog and we were in the most heavily mined area in the world at the time. And we'd already uh, had friends that had lost their legs at that point, um, had vehicles blown up at that point. Uh, one of the guys was dead already by then and all from landmines. And so when I hit that tripwire, I figured my number was up and uh, it's such a bizarre experience. But that one incident uh, as part of my trauma timeline, trying to work through that incident, we relived that moment again and again and again, and probably spent 15 or 20 hours on that one moment. So instead of processing it, you know, which is- You relived was, it. You I relived it. it in tech and the way that they do it by uh, with the rapid eye movement thing. Mm -hmm. And then it, it's, uh, it's like you're there. Like I could, I could feel the heat of the uh, the sun, the weight of my flak jacket, the feel of my rifle in my hand, uh, the smell of the of uh, the ocean air, my uh, my feet on on the gravel. You know, I mean, I relived it as real as if it was happening in real time. It was like a virtual reality experience, again, and again. And again, and I spent 15 to 20 hours in that moment because of therapy. And uh, I think that did some damage. Yeah, I mean, look, as I say, I'm not a therapist, so I, I'm not, I not, can't make a judgment, but I know in terms of, of looking into to personal growth, because I'm, I'm more of a sort of the let's grow, how, how can we heal from a holistic point of view? Sometimes looking back at the past and analyzing every detail, I would say, is not the greatest thing to do. Um, but as I say, I'm oh, well, I, I don't think it's always necessary. And um, the success rate at the OSI clinic is only like 12%. It's really, really low. I'm actually developing a coaching program right now, Sonia, um, from, I mean, I've interviewed experts from around the world. Mm -hmm. Some of them you've had on your show, like Rob Kelly. And uh, it's great. And, and, what I've gleaned from talking to global experts and 95 episodes so far is that there are other ways. Yeah. So you don't, 
You don't necessarily have to rip off the scab and poke yeah. it with a stick. You, th there are other ways. So I'm putting together a coaching program right now um, that goes at the issues in a kinder, gentler, <laughs> less invasive way. So let, let's talk about the other ways, because I, I agree. I think, I think, I think that we're on the same sort of same uh, spot there, certainly coming from a mindfulness area of personal growth. What are some of maybe the practical ways or advice you would give anybody that maybe is watching this, that, that is suffering or thinks they might be suffering from PTSD or trauma? Well, I haven't been practicing putting this into a cursory way, but some of the tenets and principles. Um, first of all, recovery is an activity. It's an ongoing activity. It's not an event. It's not something that just happens one day. Um, so you, you have to keep your feet moving. You have to be doing something. And even though it, it might sound um, uh, uh, trivial, it is not. You have to be doing something physically with your body, whether it be a sport. Um, and it has to be consistent every day, whether it's 50 push-ups a day or 10 chin-ups a day or body squats or good long walks. You, you have to do it. So you have to add that activity into your life. And an, another absolute rule is you have to take away the negative from your life. You have to control your environment. The, you had Greg Reed on the show, and uh, uh, he's the one that really hammered home for me the rule of five. And the rule of five is that you are a product of the five people you spend around uh, the most time around. So if the top five people in your life that you spend the most time with are all drama addicts and um, there's always great big stuff going on and everything's upside down and crazy, um, you're in the wrong room. Can I, can I push that as much to say as well as if you're drowning yourself in negative media as well? Well, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's all part of it. Um, I don't have any social media apps on my phone, except for unfortunately, Instagram, because I can't do that without my phone. Uh, but the, uh, the, the Facebook app isn't on my phone, none of it, because it just it, it pulls me in. And it's nothing but negative, negative, negative. I do not watch the news anymore. because it's, it's all bullshit. I don't care if it's Fox or CNN or something in between. It's all bullshit. I mean, yeah. ours has gone fairy tale. I mean, the B and I'm I can say this here, the BBC, IT, all the mainstream media. It's like, what, what? okay, okay, look, you know what? Well, when you've actually been the subject of the news story, you know, uh, and which most people have, have never been, so they don't see it firsthand. But when you're actually the subject of the news story and the or and or the person being interviewed on the news, and then you see it on TV, you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> that's, that's not what happened that's, that's not what, how did you twist that that's amazing yeah but everybody like i've been on numerous tv inter interviews for different reasons and different things that i've been involved with and it's never ever ever has it has it been accurate accurately reported or events that i've been at uh, that, that uh, uh, hit the news never 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 has it been accurately reported it always has a bend and a, and a twist for whatever reason fake news uh, it's or propaganda. never accurate. fake news or propaganda absolutely it's all fake yeah yeah you know it's just a matter of degree and 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 uh on a particular day because of a particular topic we, uh, is it a 10 out of 10 fake or a one out of 10 <laughs> you know it's always a little fake 
and um, or manipulated or twisted or spun. So I just don't watch any of it anymore. I don't care. <laughs> okay, so, so you cut out the negative people, you cut out the, the negative media, you move, move your body. Any other things? Without, um, I'm trying to give uh, ideas that you don't need a therapist or a coach for. Do you, you know, meditate? Like, uh, I do but not properly. I need to do more of it. That is definitely high on my uh, on my list. Um, things like thing is properly though. I mean, you don't need, <laughs> you don't need to. Sit. I used to think you'd have to sit cross legged and do the um, Om Man Padme. Yeah, I, I I I do meditate, but I've 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 gone from that trying to do it the way that you think you're meant to just to sit, just to sitting still, um, mm -hmm. and just taking some time. Just I do practice the mindfulness techniques of gratitude on a regular basis. So important. Um, you can't suck and blow at the same time. Yeah. So when you're dark, one of the fastest ways to snap out of it, if you can, I mean, it's, it's not always <laughs> it's, um, uh, easily done, uh, but to immediately start talking about things that you're uh, and say them out loud. I am so happy and grateful that that's a Bob Proctor phrase, but it's, it's, it's a real thing. Um, if the sun's shining, be grateful for that. If it's raining, be grateful for that. Cause you need the rain. Rain is life. And so sunshine is life. Either way, be grateful for it. Do, I'm still alive today. I'm grateful for that. I have another chance to do this right. I have another chance today to, uh, to be better than I was yesterday. Cause I'm breathing. Um, and focusing on your breath and focusing on your breathing. Uh, but the attitude of gratitude is absolutely freaking crucial because the other side of that is the victim mentality. And my goodness, I see so many people in it. And then if you tell them that you're, if you call them out on it, they'll, they'll tell you to go F yourself. Because, oh, I'm not a victim. Yeah, yeah, you are. You just can't see it because you're a victim. And victims, they can't see what's around them. They can only see what's what's bothering them. Lowest That's all they form of vibration as well. If you're into the woo-woo vibration levels as well, it's so true. It's so true. Um, uh, victimhood is the is the enemy of recovery. But but look, Mark. I mean, talking about gratitude and gratefulness. I mean, we're grateful for you because you not only have served your country, but you're also serving, continuing to serve now. And I know that's one of your mantras. Why do you think, what do you think is the mindset behind what you do? I mean, you, 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 you're a veteran, you've served once before, and yet you still are continuing to serve. Can, can you sort of explain that? Well, I'd like to think it's altruistic, but it's not. Um, service is completely selfish. It is totally selfish. And I'm not going to pretend otherwise. I do what I do for me because it. It is healing through helping. Helping others keeps me going. It, um, it gives me a sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. It helps me feel like I'm not wasting my years on this rock. So yes, it helps others, but it's totally selfish. Um, and maybe that's part of the reason I'm detached from the results. When I get uh, the compliments, I get notes from people saying, this has literally saved my life. Um, I pulled a gun out of my mouth because of this. Um, I mean, that, yeah. that is, 
that's amazing. I mean, and it doesn't, it doesn't pump my tires. I just go, that's interesting. Cool. I appreciate the strength it took for you to share that with me, but it doesn't pump my tires because yeah. it's about, it's about the mission and it's not about me, but by, by being on this mission, it helps me. And that sense of purpose is one of the reasons that military transition to civilian life is so difficult because you're part of this great big green machine. And when you're part of this giant machine with all the giant equipment and these giant missions and it's on the news and um, you, it's this constant affirmation that what I'm doing matters, what I'm doing matters, what I'm doing matters. It's on TV and movies and everything else. What I'm doing matters. Thank you for your service. What I'm doing matters. And then you get out and you, you can't compare to that again. Like there, there is no surface that can compare to um, flying around in a helicopter with your legs hanging out the side or uh, any of this stuff. You know, it's, um, it's such an intense lifestyle or it can be not for everybody, but, um, but it doesn't matter what your job is in the military from the support staff of the support staff to the frontline soldier, you're still part of the same machine and you have the sense of what I'm doing is big it's important. It matters. And if it matters, I must matter. So when you come into civilian life, finding another sense of purpose is absolutely crucial. Or, or what I'm hearing, and I understand this, it's a self-worth issue as well. Because hmm. you yep. had self-worth when you were in the military, as you said, behind that green machine. And now, where is your self-worth? Yeah. If I'm not a soldier, what am I? And that's one of the reasons pe uh, people hang on to their veteran status as strongly as they do. Um, and they always have a piece of clothing or something on their vehicle that says, veteran, veteran, uh, I have veterans plates. I'm, I do it too. And my regimental license plate, I finally put it on the front after all these years. I put it on the other day, uh, pride, pride of my past. And, um, but it, it all comes down to the number one human emotional need, which is affirmation. Yeah. And we all need it. Yeah. The, the number one human emotion yeah. need is affirmation. And that, that recognition of service, that recognition of um, that external recognition that what I'm doing matters, that is a huge, huge dr driver from people. You see it in video games. The, the, it's, it's more than just entertainment. It's an affirmation of these generally young boys that are like, look, I'm strong. I'm, I'm virtual in a virtual world anyway, but I'm strong or I'm a badass or whatever the self-talk is there. Um, it's, it's that sense of affirmation. Look, I'm good at something. Look at me go just like a little kid. Look at me, daddy. Look at me. Look at me. Well, that never Mark, leaves you. Mark, I think you're good at something. You've given so much help to the veteran community um, with your podcast, with what you're doing, with how you're serving again. I think it's just, recognizing it in yourself and, and, and getting that self-worth. Look, I, I, could, I could speak to you all night, but we've got to wrap up. Um, I've got a last question that I'd love to ask you. Oh, I'm not even prepared. I know what's coming too. Oh and no, don't for... you need to prepare for this be fine. <laughs> um, the question is, if you were to write a message in a bottle for future generations to find, what would that message be? Well, maybe I do know what I'd put in. You are enough. I love it. Mark, 
Thank you so much for being guest on my show. And you are enough. <laughs> Good to see you again, my friend. Good to see you. Hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, there's a new interview out every Monday. So hit subscribe and like, and you'll get it straight into your inbox.